0: Hey everyone, I'm Simeon, I'm a third year engineering student, and I'll be reading the passage for today, which you'll find on your handouts, which you should have got when you came in. So Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 to 15. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. May God help us to understand these words.
1: I guess freedom is something that we all love. the Freedom of being a uni student, the freedom of Easter breaks, the freedom of holidays. Intuitively, I think, freedom is a desirable good thing. Slavery? Well, who wants that? Uh, Slavery is when you've got little or no choice. You're restricted. Somebody else is there oppressing you. And so when uh, companies want to advertise themselves, I've noticed no one calls themselves slavery furniture. It's freedom furniture. There's even a, a, a business up in Subiaco called Freedom in 60 Minutes. Uh, a hypnotherapy um, uh, consultation. Uh, There's a move today, I think, of those who want to say, if you really want freedom, religion is the last place to look. There's an organisation in America, a very popular organisation called Freedom From Religion Foundation, and it's doing all sorts of activities trying to persuade people that if you want freedom, well, religion won't give it to you. Now, that's really the issue we want to talk about today. Does Christ give us freedom? The concept of freedom, in one sense, is pretty straightforward, isn't it? To be free is to be unrestricted. It's free to do what you want. But actually, we're not free to do what we want. If I want to grow fruit on the end of my fingers, I don't think I'm free to do it. It's just not who I am. If I, if I want to stay young forever, well, that ship's gone. We're limited in our freedom by what we are. But also, just doing what we want to do doesn't always lead to freedom. In fact, often doing what we want to do leads to addictions, which are a long way from freedom. I really love to take those substances. They make me feel so good, but soon I'm a complete addict. I'm in slavery to whatever it was that I was taking, or to porn and sex, or even just to bitterness Just doing what I want to do doesn't always seem to deliver the goods of the sort of freedom that we crave. Because what we want includes the urges and drives that enslave us. So where do we find freedom? Well, here's Gary the goldfish. What's freedom for Gary, do you reckon? There's a bit for freedom. You can see it in the photo. He's decided he doesn't want to be restricted by bowls and water. He'd love the freedom of outside. Is that really freedom though? It's going to be disastrous, isn't it? And you can work out what's going to happen. Unless his owner comes home soon, picks him up off the floor, throws him back in the in in the bowl, he's going to die. What would would freedom look like? In a sense, freedom is only available when you're in the environment you're designed for. But that raises the question what's the environment we're designed for? That's harder to know. Physically it's fairly obvious freedom is when I've got fuel, I've got rest, I've got exercise, I've probably got no assignments to do. But more psychologically, personally, spiritually, more deeply, what is the environment I'm designed for? Where do I find unfettered uh, freedom? Is it in just unfettered instinct? I suspect not. The other obvious problem with this sort of freedom we're talking about is when I'm free, it tends to make other people slaves. If I'm free to listen to the music I like at the volume I like, what happens to you? You're enslaved to my music. You've got to listen to my music at my volume, whether you like it or not. That's hardly freedom, is it? And so our solutions in our current culture are either to live alone, put the earbuds in, just have your own little castle all to yourself, or try and do this horrible balancing act where we balance my personal freedom with your personal rights. And we don't know how to do that. It's an impossible uh, balancing act to try and carry out. Well, freedom. Paul thinks that authentic Christianity brings real freedom. And he writes this letter to the Galatians because he sees that freedom under threat. They're under threat of the freedom being taken away, snatched away by two thieves. One of them he hasn't actually mentioned to this point. That's what he calls the flesh. He raises it in chapter 5, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. In Paul, the flesh is not meat. It's not sort of sexual sins to do with fleshliness like we might think. The flesh is that fallen human nature, that bias towards self-indulgent and self-centred evil, which includes things like jealousy and slander and rage. In verse fifteen, he says, If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed. He actually he describes it as if that's actually happening in Corinth. Uh, sorry, in, in Galatia. They are biting and devouring each other. There's mutual self destruction. He pictures them like a, a, a school of piranha who suddenly turn on each other, devouring and biting each other. That's not freedom, is it? But the other thief that's been on centre stage through most of Galatians is the law. The law that God gave Israel in the Old Testament, those 613 commandments that regulated much of life for Israel. Paul says that doesn't bring you freedom. The agitators, these external people coming in, are pressuring the Galatians to obey the law. But Paul said to them, if you were with us last week, the law was really just a guardian, a personal nanny. Essential when you're a child. It regulated your life, but it's past its use-by date now because Jesus has come. A whole new situation has come in, and chapters 2 to 4 is the explanation of that. I hope you're with us, and hope you're persuaded by it, as Paul uses theology and history and personal experience. But today we finally get to the application of that theory, that theology. If you've been a little bit disappointed so far that come to public meetings, and where's the application? Well, here it is. Chapter 5, verse 1. It's for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm there. Here's the application. Stand firm and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. This is what to do. The, the big push of these intruders is circumcision. They're saying you must be circumcised. The law says it. it's a matter of obedience. And Paul says don't give in to their pressure. Verse 2, mark my words, I tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Verse 4, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ and fallen away from grace. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying if you give in to their push, their compulsion that you be circumcised, you are trying to justify yourself by the law. Now, in one sense, that's not what the false teachers are saying. They're saying, no, Jesus justifies you. We know that, we agree on that, but you must keep this law as well. And Paul's saying that's a fatal mistake. If you think that you have to do it, then you're putting it into that sacred space of the law. And to do so, he says, is to alienate yourself from Christ and to fall away from grace. That is, not to be Christian, to not be saved on the last day, not be justified when Christ returns. And so he says to them, don't get circumcised. Now, at this point, if you're thinking, I suspect it's a little bit confusing for you uh, in some ways. Is he saying, you know, on the last day, God's going to be there and he'll say to all the blokes, come on, whip your dacks down, let's see, circumcised, out. Uncircumcised, okay. Circumcised, every circumcised person is out. Is he replacing one law, you must be circumcised with another, you must not be circumcised? No, he's not doing that. In fact, he says in verse 6, circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. It's because neither of them matter. That's why you mustn't do it. Is he saying you must stop circumcising anyone at all? But if you know the rest of the story of Paul's life, he does circumcise Timothy in Acts chapter 16, although he refuses to circumcise Titus in Galatians chapter 2. It's more complex than yes, no, you should, you shouldn't. The issue is compulsion. The issue is somebody coming along and saying you must. Because as soon as you say you must, you move into the sacred space of Jesus and his death into the sacred space of Jesus alone into the sacred space of justification of what you must do to be right with God because if there's anything you must do to be right with God then Jesus' death is insufficient you're saying Jesus isn't sufficient to justify you you must add to that and your freedom is demolished let me try and explain See, we'll use Paul's example, the one that's there in in Galatia. You must get circumcised. Now, that's one specific action, isn't it? It's an action, a command that has a binary outcome. Either you do or you don't. Either you obey it or you don't obey it. Now, imagine that you haven't been circumcised and somebody, somebody comes along and says you must be circumcised and you don't do it. Where does that leave you? Well, if they're right then you're wrong, aren't you? It's a very awkward situation because it means in a deliberate, ongoing way, you are disobeying God. That is, you haven't really bowed the knee to God at all. You're disobeying consistently, persistently, with what the Old Testament calls a high hand. And that means you're not a Christian. You're not living in the kingdom of Jesus. So it's quite different, something like circumcision, to something like lying. If I tell a lie today, well, I can repent of that, can't I? And I can say to the Lord God, tomorrow I don't want to. I know you want me to tell the truth. I I want to be honest tomorrow. See, that's about a lifestyle, but circumcision is about a one-off event. You either have or you haven't. And Paul says, if somebody comes along and says you must do it, your freedom has gone. If you say, well, you might do it, you could do it, here's some reasons I recommend, but you're free to choose, then freedom hasn't gone. But as soon as they say, you must, freedom has gone, justification has been so severely compromised, you're no longer justified, no longer right with God. Now, by that same reasoning that applies to circumcision, it applies to any sort of law. Any law that calls for a specific action, a binary, you have or you haven't. The Old Testament law was full of such commands. Keep the Sabbath, keep festivals, keep diets. Yeah, I think Paul would say, if you want to keep those, you're free to. But there's no, you must keep them. But as Christians, we so quickly move into this sort of thing, this sort of legalism. Things that we must do. You must read your Bible every day. No, you mustn't. It's a good thing to do, I commend it. Great thing to do. All sorts of advantages. I hope you want to do it. But if I say you must do it, I hope the hackles rise. I hope you start to realise that I'm encroaching on the freedom that Christ has given you. If I say you must give a tithe 10% of your income, if I say you must go to church every Sunday or twice on Sunday, as soon as I say you must, I've encroached onto Jesus' space. I've encroached into justification. If I say you must evangelise, if I say you must be a missionary, if I say you must be baptised, no, it's not true. There's nothing you must do. Christ has died for you. That's what justifies you. Nothing else. You can't add to that. In fact, you mustn't add to that. A friend of mine, um, when he was uh, finishing university, he was exploring Christianity. And he, he, as he explored it, he started to understand the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. And just at the point where he was really thinking that through and grappling with the big question will I trust Jesus? He, he got a job, just graduating, and moved overseas to the US. When he got to the US, because he'd been exploring Christianity, he just went down to the nearest local church and started to listen. And that church was a terrific church in terms of welcoming him. He ended up uh, being boarded in the the house of the pastor and his family. They were really good to him in all sorts of ways. But as he listened to what they said, the church said to him from the pulpit and from what they believed in in their official doctrine, you must be baptized. And that threw my friend Graham into, into confusion. Because he'd heard that it was Jesus not getting baptized, and so he did what he should have done. Rightly did it. He went back to his Bible. He pulled it out. He started reading it, and he read Galatians, and he worked out that they were wrong. In fact, he worked out that if he now got baptized, because they were saying you must be baptized, he would forfeit salvation. He realised he mustn't get baptized while they were saying you must. Do you see the issue? As soon as you say you must, you're encroaching onto Jesus. You're encroaching into justification by grace through faith. Because you're saying there's something I do that I must do in order to be right with God. No, there are no musts. And if you read the whole New Testament, there are no laws like that for Christians. There are lifestyles, yes. There are boundaries. But there are no laws where you can say, yes, I've done that, tick it off, I've kept the law. There are no rules like that at all. You really are free. And if anyone comes along, especially other Christians come along and put you under pressure and say, you must, Paul says, resist. Don't believe them. Don't give in to the pressure. Because to do so is not only to forfeit your freedom, but to forfeit your salvation. It's a big issue, isn't it? And Paul shows us why it's such a big issue. Well, how do you live there? Well, in verses 5 and 6, he gives us some direction pointers, which he's going to pick up later in that letter, which uh, Ben will take us through in the next section. In verse 5, he says, For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision are any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. We're longing for real righteousness. And that's a product not of laws and rules you must keep, but of the Holy Spirit and faith. And in verse 6, he talks about faith ...working itself out through love. See, faith in Jesus inevitably produces love. So where's the connection? (laughs) One's faith, one's love. Aren't they different? No. Because the Jesus you believe in... ...is the Jesus who loved me... ...and gave himself for me. That's what I believe in. That's what I trust in. I trust in somebody who loved me. Loved me to the extent... to ...to the limit of giving himself for me, the unlovely, the enemy. If I trust in that, in a sense, I'm trusting in, I'm staking my my whole future on love, on the love of Jesus. If that's true, if I've taken that to heart, if I'm convinced of that, if I've experienced that love, if I've been loved like that, that will overflow into love for others. But a law can't do it. Just finding a piece of paper each morning that says, love your neighbour, that's not going to get me to love people like this. That'll just be a burden. But when I know, when I believe in the Jesus who loved the unlovely, that shifts my heart. That produces love. Well, there's the law. What about uh, the agitators? Well, in verses 7 to 11, Paul is not so gentle on the agitators. He turns his attention to them. In verse 7, he accuses them of cutting in on the Galatians. It's like they're running this race, they're doing really well, they're going to win the gold medal, and somebody comes along and trips them, and they just go flat on their faces. At least that's what they're trying to do. And in doing so, in insisting on obedience to the law, ironically, Paul says, you stop them obeying the gospel of God's grace. You prevent obedience. It seems like the agitators actually are spreading rumours about Paul that he does preach circumcision. If you stay with him long enough, you hear him long enough, he really does say, yes, you must get circumcised, but maybe for you Galatians, he just left that out to make it easy for you. Maybe he just wanted to be liked by you. In verse 11, Paul addresses that. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. No way. You know I'm preaching the cross of Jesus because it's offensive and I keep getting persecuted. I keep copping it in the neck. The cross is offensive to Jews. Your Messiah got hung up on a tree under the curse of God. That's blasphemy. It's offensive to proud people because it says what you do can never make you right with God. And it demolishes their religions because it says the only way you can be right with the true and living God is through Jesus and no one else. And it's clear that people are being offended by Paul because he keeps getting persecuted. And he finishes the section with a very cutting conclusion. As for those agitators, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. <laughs> a bit rough, isn't it? it? You see what he's saying, though? So they go part way. They cut off a bit of foreskin uh, with a pair of, uh, well, I don't know, snippers, scissors, something like that. I wish they'd get the axe out and do the job properly. That's what he's saying. Now, that is pretty harsh, isn't it? Well, it's actually not as harsh as what he says in verse 10. Because he says in verse 10, that the one who's throwing you into confusion, whoever they may be, will have to pay the penalty, that is, before God. If they are taking you out of the grace of God to hell, they are taking themselves there as well. That is what is at stake. So he's really saying these agitators aren't nice people. They're suicide bombers. That that, would be our turn for them. What does a suicide bomber do? They decide to take out as many people as they can as they themselves take their own life. Well, that's really what these agitators are doing. They're trying to take out as many as they can as they take their own salvation. And what do you say to a suicide bomber? If one walked in today, I presume you're not going to say, oh, welcome, I love your different point of view. I presume you'd say, get out of here and blow yourself up on your own. Don't take any of us or anybody else with you. And that's what Paul says to these agitators. Well, there's the law. Secondly, he talks about the flesh, verses 13 to 15, the dark side of human nature, the dangerous side of freedom, because it so often devours us. In verse 13, he warns us against giving opportunity to the flesh, because it enslaves us, and it so easily does you know what it feels like when you lose your temper? We do it differently, don't we? Uh, people talk about some people are rhinos, some people are, uh, are, are porcupines. Now, different ways of losing temper. Some people just lose their temper and they, they go at you in a, in a rage. Other people just curl into a, a little ball like a, a, a porcupine and poke the quills at you and give you the cold shoulder treatment. The explosive or the quiet fury. Now, when you lose your temper, what's happened? Well, in your freedom, you've chosen to act in a certain way, haven't you? But you so quickly find yourself, I so quickly find myself, under its control. I'm no longer free. My temper, my fury has taken over. It's, it's grabbed hold of me, and I can't shake free of it. I'm no longer free. Well, what's the alternative to that? Well, verse 13, rather serve one another humbly in love. I think that's actually the only alternative. To move from that self-focused, instinctive to other-focused. Through love, be a slave to one another. And at this point, Paul is actually paradoxical in his his language. How do you stop being a slave? By voluntarily being a slave. How do you stop being enslaved to your own sinful nature, your own flesh? By voluntarily voluntarily becoming a slave to others. But Luther put it this way. He said, a Christian man or woman is perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. It's both together. Remember Gary the goldfish? What's our water? What's the environment in which we're free? Well, firstly, it's in Jesus. It's trusting him and being declared right with God because of what he's done. Not because of anything we have done or will do in the future. But it's also serving others in love. Using our freedom for the good of others. And when you see that, it actually does look like freedom. Christmas Day this year, I remember watching on the news uh, just some footage of the Christmas lunch I think the Salvos put on for homeless people around Perth. And stacks of people, they're getting magnificent Christmas fair, it, it just looked good. But when you looked at the faces of the servers, those who are dishing out the food, carving up the meat, uh, collecting up the empty plates, washing them up, they didn't look like slaves. They looked like free people. They were smiling, they were enjoying, they were, they were free. They were being what humans are meant to be. Like Gary, back in the bowl, in the water. So let's go back to verse 1 this is the crux. This is what Paul wants us to do. He says, if you're a Christian, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Christ really has set you free. He died. He took your curse on himself, the curse I deserved and you deserved. He took all of it. No curse remains. And therefore you are free. There's nothing you have to do to earn your salvation. There's no hoop you have to jump through. There's no law telling you you must be here at this time and there at that time. You're allowed to eat this, but not that. God is not watching over your shoulder, saying, don't you dare touch. If you do, you're out of here. You can actually ask the question, what do I want to do? What do I want to do today? What do I want to do after this talk? What do I want to do at the moment? Do I want to listen or don't want to listen? You are free, just like that plastic bag. (laughs) can I ask, is that actually your experience of being a Christian? I, I hope so. Because that's the experience of authentic Christianity. But so often we muck it up, don't we? We're, we're often just drawn to the safety of rules. Because if I've got a rule to keep, I don't have to keep thinking. I can just say, I just keep the rule. Tick the box, I'm done. I'm out of here. And often when we become Christians, what we hear from others is, oh, great, you've become a Christian. Here's a truckload of rules you've got to keep now. Preachers, people like me, do it so often. We say to to Christians, you must do this, you must do that. Have you heard that? Please, if somebody says that to you, blow a raspberry at them. No, you mustn't. Don't let yourself be enslaved. Christ has set you free. What for? For freedom. Freedom in itself is good. That's what Jesus died for, to set you free. If somebody says you must, resist. If they insist, refuse. Augustine said, love God and do what you please. I think Paul would put it slightly differently. Trust Christ and do what you want. There really is Christian freedom. And Paul says, stand firm. Don't let anyone enslave you. Stand firm in the freedom that Christ has given you. Well, my guess is that's raised all sorts of questions and difficulties. So let's go. What do you want to ask? What do you want to comment? You've got to work out how to go forward from here, don't you? My friend Graham, who went to the US, when he got back to Australia, he got baptised because no one was saying, you must. It's a good thing. He saw the value of it. Uh, But while people were saying, you must, he rightly resisted. Now, if you've done it, for example, baptism or circumcision, because you have been convinced that you must, where do you go forward? I presume you repent of that and you go back to Jesus and say, it's you alone I trust for my justification, for my salvation, and therefore from there you, you don't have to undo the baptism. You can't really. You can't sort of go back into the water and come back out and pretend it's never happened. <laughs> yes, the the atheist and agnostics society were using a hairdryer on that day, yeah. <laughs> offering to unbaptize you, um, but uh, I don't think it, that works. No, much better way to deal with it. And that's simply to repent of your lack of trust in Jesus. And your, uh, I guess it, it's really saying, Jesus, I don't really think you bought my freedom. Now, does that solve that issue or not? Do you want to come back on it? Yeah, kind of. But I'm, I'm thinking like maybe like small things, like things that my can Yeah. Uh, And those sort of things are going to happen, aren't they? We'll feel compelled by peer pressure, we'll feel compelled by all sorts of things. All of us have the insecurities that mean we're susceptible to anybody who wants to make us a slave. Those insecurities are there. What's the solution? The solution is, is confidence in Jesus. And that's something that will grow by God's Spirit over time. I hope and pray it does grow. Because that's the thing that will ultimately free you from the insecurities that drive you to it. If you realise you have been uh, the victim of slavery, then repent. That is, ask God for forgiveness, uh, ask for his help, that you don't go that same way again, and move on, uh, living a life of faith expressing itself in love. Yeah. If you see someone doing something bad, how do you go about it? Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Uh, week after next. I'll leave that in Ben's court. <laughs> Where's Ben? The... <laughs> yeah. Because the way you do it if you believe the gospel is actually very different to how you do it if you didn't. Very, very different. And Galatians 6, first few verses, Paul deals with that issue in the context of freedom of the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Like most most we're stand free, um and like we can do anything and
0: um we can keep the words if like he said that um there's a like it doesn't really matter what you do, like you are in Christ and
1: it's not you must do this, you must do that, so uh, yes. Sorry, can I backtrack one bit? I didn't say it didn't matter what you do. I said uh that you it uh, there are no musts. Um, is it okay to keep the law? Yeah. Uh, it's okay, while it, it, but it depends on your motive for doing it. So there are, there are two motives for keeping the law. Two possible motives for keeping the law, I think. Um, one is, you think that it's, you still are under law before God and you must keep it. Or, you know you're not under law, you don't have to keep it, but for the sake of those people who are under law... You might for a while keep the law. So they're the two motives I think that Paul gives. The other one's in 1 Corinthians 9, if you want to look that up. Um, and the second is very different to the first. Are you thinking there's another motive? No, but it's just like, I know like, a lot of people just are tradition or culture or something, but not actually believe that it's what their salvation, but when you some Um If you, in your freedom, choose to keep some bits of the law like keeping a Sabbath day or something, well, you're free to do it. Um, But if you think you must do it, then you're in slavery. Is that that distinction? So we need to carefully think through the distinction Paul's making between must and freedom. And he's saying there are no musts. There.
0: If, there's, if we're not supposed to keep the law, but we're guided by love, sometimes it's not quite clear. We're a bit confused about how to love people. Um, if the rule is just love, how do you get any sort of
1: content to that? Thanks, Ben. So the question is, if the rule is love, how do you get content to that? That feels like it could just degenerate into sentimentality or something. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, uh, I think what Paul would say uh, um, is that, I'm trying to think which of a number of passages we go to. Come with me to Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, Paul says to Titus, who's the elder of a church, you must teach what is appropriate, what accords with sound doctrine. Now, what's sound doctrine? Sound doctrine is, the, if you like, it's the worldview that the Bible gives us about what it means to be a human, what we've been created for, our nature as humans, our nature as men and women, uh, the sort of uh, society and community that God wants to build. Now, that's reflected in the law, but actually it's our doctrine that gives us our behaviour. The law is a shadow of it, but it's it's the doctrine that helps us work out. For example, the doctrine of men and women and marriage tells us that adultery is wrong. It's always wrong because it goes against uh, sound doctrine. Not because there's a law that says you must not commit adultery. That's somehow arbitrary or whatever. Um, And so sound doctrine will give you the ethical directions and the lifestyle that is good and pleasing to God. Um, But we don't do it by law. We do it by sound doctrine. That's a short answer.